Hello and welcome to the EdSurge On Air podcast. Math professor Robert Talbert says it would happen every now and then in the lecture courses he taught. He would get a nagging, unsettling feeling that the information he was delivering just wasn't sinking in. I kind of felt like there were there were these little cracks in the edifice every now and then where I'd have students where I would give just like these great lecture courses. I'd have students who were engaged. You could see it in their eyes. They seemed to be engaged. They would do well on time tests, uh, you know, just acing time tests, no problems. And then first day, second semester, it's like nothing ever happened. And when your students who made A's in Calculus 1 come into Calculus 2 and just literally cannot even recall the information from calculus one and you ask him what's going on why what's what's the matter so well that was I, that was that was last semester he eventually concluded the problem wasn't his students it was him or more specifically it was the way he was teaching so a few years ago talbert who's a math professor at grand valley state university tried a new approach known as flipped learning it's a method that's catching on more and more these days in college classrooms He describes it as a whole new philosophy of teaching. So unlike a lecture model where students first learn new material in the classroom, in the flip model, the students first encounter material outside of class, usually in the form of video lectures, and then class time is spent kind of applying that information while the professor's there to help if needed. In a new book, Talbert gives a frank look into his classroom experiences with flipped classroom and with lecture, And he gives tips on how to avoid what he calls flipped failure. This week, I talked to Talbert about his classroom experiences and why he thinks universities are taking teaching more seriously these days. We'll have that conversation right after this. This episode of the EdSurge On Air podcast is brought to you by the EdSurge Digital Learning Network. Move your institution forward faster. Join a community of instructional designers and other higher education strategic leaders in the EdSurge Digital Learning Network. Visit www.edsurgedln.com to find out more. That's DLN as in Digital Learning Network. I wanted to start out by just asking about your personal story. Um, You've been teaching math in the traditional way for about 15 years, I guess, before you tried the flipped classroom. Um, Yeah, that's right. What was wrong with the old way? Well, it wasn't so much wrong as it was a bad fit for a new course that I was developing. This is actually about eight years ago. I started casting about for different models of designing the course. Is there something out there that somebody has tried uh, that would seem to be a better fit? And I stumbled across uh, this paper by three software engineers at Miami of Ohio who had worked with something they called the inverted classroom. And it was exactly as you described. Uh, Students in their software engineering courses were given uh, work to do. They first encountered new software engineering concepts, the basics, uh, prior to coming to class, and then their whole class time was spent you know, programming, uh, doing what software engineers do. And I thought, well, that's perfect. So I, I read their paper. I tried to set up the class uh, designed around uh, their principles. Uh, it turned out the software I was using already had really professionally well-done uh, instructional videos for users, and so it was just a great, uh, great setup. It didn't go particularly well, though. If you read the book, I describe uh, kind of a 
a large amount of failure with implementing that class in the first place, not because of the structure, but because of the way that I had approached it. And so um, in some ways, this philosophy is not entirely new, uh, but what is new is the level of intentionality that instructors need to give to it to create those uh, pre-class environments that are really, really productive for students. That's what I didn't do when I first started using flipped learning. And that's what I've since you know tried every year to get better at. And hopefully my book is just really more of a way for people to learn from my mistakes without making them themselves, honestly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you do talk about um, flipped failure and both mm-hmm. both the fact that you, you, you know, you're sort of honest and say that you, you had some, but also that, that professors are actually anxious um, about that, that things will be time consuming or stressful or that sure. um, the students won't like it or that, or that it won't actually work for students. And so what are some, what are some tips based on your experiences, some um, ways to avoid flipped failure? <laughs> well, I think f- flip failure looks like instructional failure in any setup, it seems like. And most of the failures that I've ever experienced using flip learning have been failures in communication and failures in planning. Uh, and so that's not something specifically tied to a flipped learning model. And so for, for me, what I often tell faculty is, first of all, if you're interested in using flipped learning, you got to give yourself a lot of time to ease into it. Uh, I try to suggest a one-year plan for the moment between the moment you become interested in flipped learning and the moment you actually use in the classroom. It take a year, like a solid year, to plan, to develop materials, to test things out, and so forth. Don't try to jump straight into it. But I think primarily what really separates successful flip classes from unsuccessful flip classes is the level of support and communication that instructors have with their students. Uh, every time that I've had a, had, a, had a mishap or a misstep in the classroom, it's because I wasn't listening, honestly. I wasn't uh, asking my students how things were going. I wasn't really paying attention to their answers. I, it, it, it was just really a failure of communication or a failure, like I said, of planning, uh, of not thinking ahead for what could possibly happen in a classroom uh, when I go with a flip structure. Because one of the things about flipped learning is that it opens the class time up, what I call the group space uh, in the classroom, where students are actually meeting and working together, and anything could happen. Uh, It's it's quite an improvisational uh, approach to teaching, I think, in the classroom. And so if you don't plan ahead for contingencies, uh, at least mentally prepare for them, uh, something's going to happen that you're not ready for, and it's going to cause issues to be to put it mildly and i was really curious you mentioned that i mean part of your theory on how this is a new philosophy of teaching you mentioned that in traditional teaching students get addicted to your teaching and not in a good way what what do you mean by this addiction to teaching that that the lecture (laughs) gives us right right i think there there can be a, a an unhealthy dependency from of students upon instructors and uh, students uh, I've heard I was just reading one of my friends uh, blog posts last night where he referred to himself as an answer pinata uh, where his huh. role in the classroom where students gang up on him, beat him until the answers come out, basically. And I think that students can often take an approach where this is the only thing they've ever known. It's not a failure of, of character amongst the students. It's just a, a, an unfortunate artifact of the kind of educational system we they grow up with, that students go to class expecting the teacher to do work for them. Um, 
And that's that. That's what the class is for. And so when a teacher does anything different, whether it's group, just straight group work outside of a flip learning session or whatever, uh, there's definitely uh, a, a high frequency of people saying you're not teaching the class because you're not lecturing to us anymore. Um, what I found as a mathematician teaching courses like calculus was that students would listen to me uh, very carefully sometimes. They're good listeners. And they would be able to replicate what I was doing uh, if it was a very similar type of problem I was working on the board. But the moment that they had to do something, a slight left turn away from the stock example I was giving, they were just complete. They felt like they were completely unable to do it. I know better. I know that they are completely able to do complicated problems, but they were absolutely uh, you know, hooked into this idea of learned helplessness. Like if the teacher doesn't get me started, I can't do it. And so it's kind of a dependency. It's something that they don't necessarily enjoy doing, but they do it anyway. And normally in, in normal language, we call that an addiction. So if you think about the kind of direction that we're going here in higher education, we're trying to produce students who are self-feeders, who don't need a classroom, going back to that notion of addiction. They don't need a class to learn things eventually, right? I mean, if students graduate from college and they can't learn things on their own, then that college education was totally useless. It was a waste. And people are right to criticize universities for pointing us in that direction. So I, I just spend, I just put a little bit in the syllabus, maybe a paragraph and explain why this is, this is how we're going to do the class. You're going to be responsible for learning new things on your own with a structured activity and open-ended uh, help resources before class. It's very light. And then we're going to spend our class time doing applications because that's the way that we're going to focus our class time very scarce, very expensive on the most important, most difficult things that really need other people around. And students have no problems with this if you phrase it in that direction. Hmm. That's really interesting. And now, I, I, in the book, you do mention that that in re, in retrospect, maybe that there the old way for you having taught all those years in the traditional model, there were downsides, like that that there were the nagging feelings that certain things weren't working. Could you describe those a little yeah. bit about? Yeah, well, you really get this when you teach a two-semester sequence of a course, and you get students from the first semester in your second semester class, <laughs> because you will give problems in mathematics that have that are callbacks to earlier things like Calculus 1 and Calculus 2, as I'm referring to. So in Calculus 2, there might be some Calculus 1 information that students have to learn. And when your students who made A's in Calculus 1 come into Calculus 2 and just literally cannot even recall the information from calculus one and you ask them what's going on why what's what's the matter so well that was I, that was that was last semester <laughs> thought, well you know you are still expected to remember this throughout you know your lifespan it doesn't just die at the final exam you know and so i, I kind of felt like there were there were these little cracks in the edifice every now and then where i'd have students where i would give just like these great lecture courses i'd have students who were engaged you could see it in their eyes they seemed to be engaged they would do well on time tests yeah, you know, just acing time tests, no problems. And then first day, second semester, it's like nothing ever happened. Wow. And if that's the case, then um, maybe nothing is happening, uh, honestly. I mean, maybe it just appears that something's happening. You know, how do I really know that students are learning in such a way that it's persisting past the end of the semester and it's accumulating over their lifespan so that when they're out of college, they're not going to need me to jumpstart their batteries when they have to learn something new. That that was that very occasionally that would sort of these little sneaky doubts and cracks would enter in and it would really bother me, just very disturbing. I'd shove them under my consciousness and try not to think about them, but after a while, you just can't. Yeah, and uh, yeah, and, and you're like, who taught them that? Oh, it was you. 
Like, yeah, right. <laughs> you had a terrible professor for Calc one. Oh, wait a minute. Yeah. And, and do you have any, what is your evidence that under the flip model, it's better? Right. Well, that's one thing that the flip model is really good for is giving you plenty of opportunities to gather uh, data about student learning. Mm -hmm. So when you're when, when you basically freed up class time, so there's very little lecturing going on. There's, it's not a no lecture situation, but all any lecture that's there is like really short and targeted and short and sweet and to the point. You can give lots and lots of formative assessment day in and day out. You can interleave the formative assessment so that you know, if you cover a topic in week two, uh, you can give them a little in-class quiz in week five to see if it's still there. And I've noticed that it's still there. I mean, it's still, it really persists uh, throughout, the, uh, throughout the course. So I, it, it, it Having a flipped classroom is not a guarantee that you know this knowledge is going to persist and accumulate. Uh, you could still screw it up uh, as a teacher, and I've certainly done that before myself. But it does free up a lot of time, a lot of space to introduce some active uh, assessment techniques, like simple formative assessment using clickers or just plain pieces of paper, uh, where you can really track students one day at a time, one week at a time, one student at a time. So I've seen lots of, uh, of great uh, success stories with students coming through. Uh, where uh, you know they, they they it might take them a little while longer to really get it, but they get it because they have freedom, they have flexibility, and they have attention. Where where are we in the in, in the adoption of of this kind of method, or really maybe even more broadly, are do you you know where are we in professors kind of rethinking or wanting to really hitting that moment like you're describing of something's not working and wanting to try something new. Is that something that's really taking off or is this still a pretty, you know, um, niche thing? Some professors do this, but, but the typical is, is not doing that. There's been a, a core of types of universities and colleges for a very long time where teaching is extremely important to people. There are small liberal arts colleges, mid-sized and small universities like the one that I teach at, where uh, research is balanced out by teaching, or maybe teaching is the most dominant thing. And for those people, uh, you know, this is old news. But what I'm seeing happening now, which is very encouraging, are uh, universities that are typically known as research universities where uh, the, the stereotype is that teaching is really not that important. In some cases, that stereotype is justified. If you look at their promotion and tenure criteria, uh, teaching is not encouraged whatsoever. In fact, it can be actively discouraged in some places. And even in those places, there's an interest. Uh, there's, a, there's a recognition that you can't just be a research university anymore. You have to be a research university that does excellent research and excellent teaching at the same time. And that there's no shame in being good at both. <laughs> there, there's even, I even sense a stigma sometimes in some universities where excellent teachers, they must be taking time and attention away from their research if they're going to be excellent teachers. There's just no way you could be good at both. Uh, and so, and even being, being a, an excellent teacher is seen as like a, a sign of weakness in some ways. What is the driver? What is the, the pressure there? But I do know that there's some external pressures for sure. I mean, public universities like where I teach at Grand Valley State, I mean, we are a publicly funded university. And so in some ways, I mean, we're always beholden to, you know, uh, the parents of our students and the taxpayers, for example. And I think taxpayers and parents are really saying, like, look, we want we don't necessarily want universities to give up research, but we're sending our kids to these universities and we want to see what we're getting for it. I mean, we want our student kids to be educated. Mm. 
Uh, and so we want to see, you know, our, our kids uh, be in classes where they're going to be uh, well attended to, where some thought has been put into instruction and they're really getting a great education, uh, you know, along with being in a place where world class research is done. So I, I think there's some external pressures going on there as well. And I think that there are some key players in higher education uh, uh, for, you know, uh, there, there was a Nobel Prize winning physicist, Carl Wyman, recently, uh, who's written a book on this, mm-hmm. on, on being college teaching, for example. I forget the name of the book, but he's been in, uh, in, been in uh, the, the higher ed media quite a bit. And, you know, when people like Carl Wyman speak up, uh, you know, people, other people who may not have ever thought of teaching very seriously begin to take notice because he's got the research cred that somebody like me does not have. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're offering with your book, it's really a guide. I mean, there's you. You certainly yeah. make it's certainly part of the book is you're making a case that this is backed by research and that there's it's actually a, a long fits into a long tradition. So it's not some wacky, uh, wacky, wacky out there. Right, idea. not a flavor of the yeah. month. Yeah. Um, but then again, it's it's a lot of the book is spent on um, really some some just kind of straightforward like here's how to do it. Right. 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 That's correct. A, a, a very large portion of this book actually grew out of workshops that I've been giving for uh, several years now and which have their, themselves grew out of my own sort of structure for how to think about how designing a class. I find that a lot of faculty are very interested in flipped learning, but it's just knowing how to start and get moving on it. That's really the barrier. Uh, uh, faculty often ask for what sort of research do you have that backs this up? And I do give quite a bit of research background in the book, but really what they want is a little bit of assurance that when they step forward with this, they're not going to just fall flat on their faces. It's totally understandable. So hopefully, you know, what I have in the book there is just a step-by-step-by-step guide that's adapted from D. Fink's uh, great uh, guidebook for intentional course planning that sort of wraps uh, flip learning into just a real easy-to-reproduce workflow that eventually will become very natural for people if they work with it. So just so it's not abstract and since you've done so much of this you know in the classroom can you get i always when i when i hear about flip classroom to me it seems like the anxiety or the the question i would have as a professor is what am i going to do with all that class time right because it's it's um it's one thing to say interactive exercises but what i you know okay what are those (laughs) and who makes those yeah to you know how does that take an hour or or what is going on so could you give me a can you can you t- describe like you know a, paint a picture for us of like a moment from one of your classes where you were kind of like yeah this is it um, and where students yeah. were responding and 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 what was it like like what was the activity like what's the class time what's the kind of ideal moment for you or a very specific moment that happened where you were like mm-hmm. this is it. Boy, I've had a lot of really great moments. Uh, it seems like in the last two or three years, I've been working with these two specific classes that are like intro to discrete mathematics for computer science majors. Okay. So it's a sort of a theoretic, it's, it's an entry level sort of sophomore level course on mathematical background that computer scientists need. And I love teaching this course because it has no, it's all computer science majors. <laughs> and they've got a particular outlook on the world that just really gels with me. I, I feel like it's like my tribe. Uh, and so, gosh, I could pick a number of different things. I would say, you know, f- for example, maybe my favorite example of all would be we're studying uh, this this 
abstracted idea in one of the classes called a graph. And that's basically just like an abstracted notion of a network with little points and lines that connect the points. So it models things like computer networks and so on. Anyway, there's a ton of theory about graphs. And so one a large portion of this class is learning how to uncover these theory, this theory and learning how to prove theory um, by through mathematical proof writing. So it's quite tough for students. So what I try to use the classroom for is sort of guided inquiry that results in discovery of interesting mathematical truths. And then we put our heads together to see if we can explain why these things that we discover really are true. Like, uh, for example, there's a there's a famous result that says if you take uh, uh, sort of a triangulated area, uh, uh, one of these graphs, and you, there is a relationship called Euler's formula that connects the number of vertices in the graph, the number of edges and the number of two dimensional faces. And so to prepare for class, there's a there's a game uh, actually called planarity.net. OK, that's a and they, they go out and play this game. Their, their classroom uh, preparation is to play three rounds of this game. Mm. There's no video, no nothing. There's a little bit of text they have to read to understand some words. Mm. Uh, but they play a game, uh, three rounds of it, and their their uh, their instructions are to play the game and keep track of the data, mm. <laughs> count the number of vertices, number of edges, number of faces. Okay, and so that's that's what they do. So there's no video or anything, any such thing. And then when we come in, I say, okay, what you what what kind of data did you get? And they came up to the board and they put it up there. And I say, okay, now look for patterns in the data that you got. And they work and work and work, and they discover something really amazing that, uh, that, the, that the, the number of vertices minus the number of edges plus the number of faces always equals two. Hmm. It's, a, it's an amazing, beautiful, classical result uh, that's, a, that's just incredible. And so they discover this, and that takes like 15 minutes. <laughs> and then they say, okay, now we got to prove that this always works. Is, is this really a coincidence? Well, why, how do we know it's not always a coincidence, mm -hmm. right? And so we spend the rest of the time just developing arguments and trying to shoot each other down with these sorts of things. So that's one of my favorite class meetings where really you got to have a full on 50 minutes in the class. It's really more like 40 because we have a little bit of stuff we do at the beginning, a little bit of stuff we do at the end to wrap up. Uh, but you really need a solid 40 minutes to do that topic justice. And if you don't discover it, it's just not interesting. <laughs> if I sit up and lectured about it, you might look at it and think, oh, that's that's OK, I guess. But if you stumble across it yourself, it just like strikes this chord in you. And now a number of students every year that I teach this this way come up and say, like, that was the coolest thing I've ever seen in my life. Like, I really feel like I'm doing mathematics now. It just takes time and space. And so in a flip setting, you get the time and the space. It's not something that produces anxiety for me. It's something that's like, oh, finally, I can breathe. Right? Mm. I don't have to shove things down the students' throats to try to get through the material. I can really let them sit back and just coast and work hard together to try to figure out what's going on with this. Well, great. Well, I think it's a great place to, to end. And thank you so much for, for sharing your, uh, your, your findings here. And well, people can check out the book. Yes. Thanks a lot, Jeff. All right. This has been the EdSurge On Air podcast. As always, we want to hear from you. Send suggestions to feedback at edsurge.com and subscribe on iTunes or whatever podcast app you use. And please take a minute to give us a rating. This episode was edited and produced by me, Jeff Young. We'll be back next week with more conversations about the future of education. Thanks for listening. <laughs>